0: Congregation As uh, Reformed churches, we do value the fact that God reveals uh, throughout the Scriptures that He is in a covenant relationship with His people. Uh, the doctrine of covenant runs uh, throughout the Scriptures, and this particular psalm is distinctly a covenant psalm. It is one which we recognize has elements in it in which the Lord reminds His covenant people that they are in a relationship with Him. Surely we would agree with evangelicalism and uh, evangelical pastors that uh, when it comes to religion, we need to enter into a personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, There needs to be a personal relationship in order for us to have any comfort of our salvation. But when we consider the doctrine of covenant and the way it's revealed in Scripture, we forget the fact that we already are in a relationship to the Lord. Uh, we, We would not want to sit back and say, well, God has to do something. Let's not forget God has already done something. I mean, we are already in a, covenant, in a relationship with the Lord, in a sense, if, if by virtue of the fact that we were created by Him. And if you've created something, and someone messes it up, you take that personally, right? And so, we are His creatures, and we have rebelled against Him. God takes that Very personally, we are in a relationship with God as his creatures made in his image. We have fallen into sin in Adam and become guilty of rebellion against him. So we're in relationship with him as his creatures. We're in relationship with him as at enmity against him. As Romans 8, 7 says, the natural mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So those are relationships. But the amazing thing about the Scripture is it reveals to us from the beginning to the end that God is a God of tender mercy, even the tender love a father has, in that he pursues sinners to to engage in a special relationship with them, which began even when God called Adam. Adam, where are you? God takes initiative to enter into A gracious relationship with fallen man. And what we have here is a a psalm, a psalm that is a covenant psalm, a psalm in which the Lord reminds His people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Well, Asaph is one who very much values the covenant relationship that, that Israel has with the Lord. And in fact, he feels it's a matter that should be included in the singing of the covenant people. Sing aloud to the God of our strength, the God of Jacob. And he goes on to to also point out there's a special day the Lord has made. The Lord indeed has, has made a day in which he is going to take initiative to meet with his people. And uh, so there are a number of old, feast, old Testament feast days, and all of them converge in their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, who then suffered and died to fulfill all the ceremonies of the Old Testament tabernacle rituals as written out in the book of Leviticus, and then He rose from the grave. And so it's Sunday today, and we can say, of all of those days, this is the best feast day of the week in that it tells us that Jesus Christ has finished everything that was needed to fulfill the covenant of, the, of it in its predictions, in its ceremonies, in its prophecies. All the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He rose, and we can say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But now, as we trace the psalm, the psalmist is not only calling the covenant people together to, <clears throat> to a, a feast day in which they remember the Lord's wonderful deeds toward his people, <clears throat> how he brought them out. Notice verse 5, it, it uh, talks about the land of Egypt. Verse 6 talks about being released from the burdens the, of slavery in Egypt. The Lord has brought them out, and he's brought them through the wilderness, and various testing experiences were experienced. And and then they went into Canaan, and they were established, and they were given prophets and priests and kings. And the setting... Excuse me. What is the context of this particular time? We're not exactly sure, but... It seems that the, the psalm of Asaph is written in a context in which the people have turned away from God, their God, and they're starting to listen to the lies of the pagan culture around them, and they are worshiping foreign gods. And so the emphasis in verse 9, "'Oh, my people,' the Lord is saying,' There shall be no foreign God among you. You're you're turning to idols. And then in the context of his accusation against them and and this grief of his that that they are turning away from the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob who has done such wonderful things for them, that they're turning away from him. And then the emphasis comes out clearer in verse 10. I am the Lord, your God. I'm the one that you should be worshiping. I'm the one, the only true God. And so, that's the context as we enter into verse 10. The congregation, one of the marvelous things about the history of the church, is not just that He has made a covenant with a certain people, that He has separated us in His mercy from the culture and that we have been baptized in His name, dedicated for His glory in that way, by the name of the triune God. But that every Lord's Day, in fact, every time we open the Bible, He comes to us again and again and again. And we mess up. And then He calls us back, and we go astray like we sang. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And yet the Lord continues to come back. That's covenant mercy, tender love that He keeps calling us. And so, as we enter into this verse, let's look at this particular covenant promise for the spiritually hungry, Actually, the human soul has a vacancy because the, the good contents that were in the human soul, by virtue of being made in the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we have so messed up in the fall that that content has been empty. And man's trying to fill up that emptiness in his soul or her soul. And they're doing it in such foolish ways, like these foreign gods. Now, here's a covenant promise that has the answer to the human heart. Let's look at the demand of the promise, the benefit of the promise, and the encouragement of the promise. A covenant promise for the spiritually hungry, a demand, a benefit, a, an encouragement. There is a demand here. When the Lord says, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That is the character of a covenant, and that is, there are promises and there are demands. Uh, There's benefits, but there are curses. So there is that aspect of the covenant that there's a demand and and why does the lord come with these calls these demands the because the covenant of grace comes with this demand because there's always tension between the sovereignty of god and the responsibility of man god is sovereign and wants to he desires to give everything that his people need for salvation but he treats them as people with a will even if it's a rebellious will And He addresses their accountability. And so we have a psalm here which in in this verse, open your mouth wide, has a demand. And this demand is a revelation of that aspect of the covenant that teaches us God wants to fulfill His promises in the way of our accountable response to His Word. He wants a willing people, in other words. Yes, He makes His people willing in the day of His power, but He calls them to be willing. He calls them to respond in obedience. Indeed, we confess it's all of grace. Salvation is all the work of the Lord. But how does He do that? He does that in the way of His Word. Faith comes by hearing in Paul's statement in Romans 10. But hearing, the ability to spiritually hear what he's saying requires a regenerative work, and that ability to hear is actually produced by the call. We call it the effectual call. So, when the calls of his covenant demands come to our ears and into our heart and Put its pressure on our soul. That's the way in which God desires to fulfill his covenant of grace and so that's why there's this demand. Another question that we might ask with regard to why this particular expression, well, this is symbolic language, and the Lord, just as Jesus often spoke in parables, in one statement says he never even spoke without some kind of symbolic language or a parable, a picture, word pictures. And so the Old Testament also does that, and so we have this word picture, open your mouth wide. It's a word picture. The picture comes to my mind uh, as, uh, as we're raising our children, all of a sudden some child that we've been feeding quite successfully for some time sits in their high chair and they pucker their lips and just decide not to take that particular spoonful. And uh, you discover that oh, there's no fever, there's nothing wrong, no evidence of sickness. The only reason why this child will not take these spoonfuls of food is just a bit of stubbornness. They want to show their will. And so as parents, you you plead with the child, come on, open your mouth. A big spoonful. You see, we can identify with that. It's very simple language. We pick up the image. So the Lord's giving us this word picture, and he's saying, that's how stubborn you people are. I have such good things for you. I have such gracious mercies to give you. And why don't you just ask? Open your mouth. So why does the Lord use this figure in order to demonstrate to us, to prove to us, by way of conviction, how great our need is, that we are so lacking in prayer toward Him, so lacking in our faith, so lacking in, in our submission to Him. So, this language tells us that they are suffering, the Israelites, in this particular context, they are suffering… Because of their sin. That's what God's covenant said to them. When you walk in the ways of sin, and that was the theocratic covenant uh, that he had with them, I'll give you this land, but I'll if you walk in the ways of sin, I'll hold back the blessings of the land. It won't rain. There will be grasshoppers. There will be animals invaded. He has all kinds of things that he tells them, that these things will come. And it seems because of the emphasis, especially toward the end of this psalm, that this is a time of famine. And if it's a time of famine in the land of Israel, it's because they have been a sinful people. They have sinned against the God of the covenant. And that's evident in his pleading No strange God should be found among you. In other words, the implication is they have idols. They're bowing where they should not be bowing. They're opening their mouth in petition and prayer to false gods, not to Jehovah, their God. It's a time of economic recession because it's a time of spiritual Recession. And though we do not live in a time uh, where we can claim that Canada is the promised land of the Lord and that we are Israel in the same sense as a nation, yet God's still a covenantal God, and He's a holy God. And we might have to ask the question very clearly in our time as well. Why are we hearing of so much devastation in our time? What is the reason? Well, surely the people of the church, the people of His covenant, still are under a certain covenantal dispensation and, and administration of His mercy. And, and if we are in a land where there is a chastening of the Lord's hand, should we not be humbled as a church, as the people who confess His name? I mean, we, look, we, we quote that text in Second Corinthians in Second Chronicles rather, if my people who are called by my name, did you notice that a couple of times in this psalm the Lord says, my people, so his focus in that promise, if my people are called off after my name, if they humble themselves and repent of their wicked ways, if they in the terms of this psalm, if they would just humble themselves and open their mouths toward me, I will be merciful and heal their land. Well, we see here the Lord is convicting his people in the Old Testament of their sinfulness of not turning to him their lack of prayer and faith in the Lord. Secondly, he teaches them through this when he says, open your mouth wide, that it is not a little need. It's not just a little thing that he's got against them that, you know, if, if they would just take a little nibble, that that would solve the problem. No, they have big needs, and they really need to open their mouth wide in prayer to him because it's a great need. He is emphasizing through this and teaching them that that they and we also, as this word comes to us today, He's teaching us, we need not fear to come to Him with our big needs. We do not have to fear because he's the kind of god who is so patient and loving and forgiving that he will in no wise jesus even assures us of this i will in no wise cast off any who come to him to me he won't turn us back he's the one who is calling us in isaiah 55 oh everyone that thirsts come by Come to the waters, he that thirsts, he that has no money. Come, buy, eat. The Lord, the Lord offers His mercies freely, and He is encouraging us, don't be afraid to come to me. I welcome people opening their mouth toward me. A fourth thing that we can draw out of this is that He is pleased to bestow His covenant blessings in the way of our prayer. Now, of course, you as mothers and fathers, you'll make sure that your children get fed. But when they go racing to the cupboard and grab into the cookie jar, you, you like it if they would first say, Please, Mom, can I have a cookie? And the Lord delights to have His people, His children, come to Him and ask Him. I mean... So often we have in Scripture these promises of Psalm 50, verse 15, "'Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me.'" He delights to hear His people call upon Him, opening their mouths toward Him. And the essential blessings of the covenant are spoken of in in Ezekiel 36. Read that for homework it 's a beautiful covenant passage of ezekiel thirty six It talks about the sprinkling. It gives us an image of this this cleansing from sin he, he promises to give soft hearts for the instead of hard hearts. He promises to put a spirit of true repentance in his people. The essential blessings the saving blessings of the covenant are spoken of there, and then toward the end it says. I will yet for these things be inquired of by the house of Israel. The Lord is saying, I want you to ask. I heard recently that a man who was dying and had spent much of his life very reluctant to believe the free offers of mercy and grace in the gospel that he had come to liberty, he had come to understand forgiveness, and saying to a friend of his, all you need to do is ask. Yes, there is a certain profound simplicity to the repentant heart calling upon the Lord. The Lord says, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus says, Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. And so the Lord through this reveals that he is pleased to bestow covenant blessings in the way of our humble prayer for them. Open your mouth wide. By this, the Lord is also teaching that we need not come simply with little things. In fact, he quite welcomes us coming with big petitions, with big requests. Don't think that you may only come with, well, I'll ask for my daily food. Because Jesus teaches us that we may come and pray, not only give us this day our daily bread, but also forgive us our trespasses our sins he welcomes us to come if you would manage to come to a king who has all the resources of the country at his uh, his sovereign disposal and you would finally make it through the the palace gate and and into the inner throne room and uh, he would say well ask And I'll give, you wouldn't say, well, uh, pardon me, but could I just have a bowl of soup? No, you wouldn't really be honoring a king in all his sovereignty that way. The Puritans wanted to encourage people this way, uh, that the Lord is welcoming us to come with big petitions. And so they put it this way, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. We are poor. He calls to such. We can never ask too much. So it's good to remind yourself of that. Sarah was promised and Abraham that they would have a son, and, and it just seemed impossible. And the Lord turned and asked in response to Sarah's laughter, Is anything too hard? For the Lord. For the Lord Jesus once gave this image of a camel going through the eye of a needle, and right away when you think of it, your mind gets a little distorted. How, how would that happen? The disciples thought, well, if that's, if that's how impossible it is for a rich man to go to heaven, who can be saved? And Jesus wanted that response because he was going to tell them, and as he did, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so, the Lord, through this wide-mouth image, encourages us to come with big petitions and also to come trustingly. Children, have you ever seen a robin's nest or some other bird? And the eggs are there, they hatch, and there's these little birdies, and uh, they're clustered together because keeping each other warm. And, and then the mother bird comes, and you can hardly see these little camouflaged little birdies in the nest. And But when mother bird comes with a, a worm that she's going to break up and give to the little birdies, all of a sudden that nurse, that nest just bursts open and you hear all this chirping and, and chirping and crying and and nothing but mouths is what you see in the nest wide mouths and they trust that the mother will put the mother bird will put good things in their mouth but just like those little birds trust the mother bird when they hear the chirp they they hear this this noise, some, something that identifies the mother, right away they trust the mother's going to give us something good. And so as the Lord calls us, He's asking us, open your mouth wide, trust me, I have good things for you. And there's here also the instruction, implicit, expect, trust, but also expect the blessing. As you call upon me, believe. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, we read Then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you, and you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Well, now, the the benefit. promised to us in this this gracious way, in this encouraging way, do we ask God? Do we go to Him and ask Him for the big things in our life? And what is it that He promises? The benefit He promises here is is so great. He says, I will fill it. Right away, we understand from this promise part we hear, have, hear the demand, but the promise part assures us he's trustworthy. Faithful is he who is promised, who will also do it. Also, we notice here when he says, I will fill it, this is a well-meant offer of the gospel. And When, when you're a parent and you say, oh, I have a real good treat here, open your mouth wide. And then the child opens their mouth wide, and you don't pull it back and say, ha-ha, I tricked you. Do you think the Lord would trick us? I believe we can trust the Lord when he says, I have good things to give you. That when we ask, he assures us here, I will. I will do it. Faithful is he. And there are some who preach the promises of the gospel in such a way and qualify them and and wrap them up with conditions and preconditions, and they imply that, well, you can ask, maybe you'll receive. Who knows? Possibly. If you're one of the elect, well, but there's this sowing of doubt that comes with the preconditions, and this reflection internally, am I really qualified to expect the Lord to answer my prayer? That's exactly the opposite of what the Lord intends with these gracious promises. They are well-meant, free offers of the gospel that come to us. No ifs, ands, or buts, or even maybes. I will fill it. And as we we see this promise come and, and giving us this certainty with it, with the word will, there's also the word fill. Will fill. And so when he says fill, he is implying here, I will do more than you could even expect. I will not put you to shame. God is not a stingy God. When he says, open your mouth wide, he is saying, I'm so willing to give things to you, the best things. And in fact, Ephesians 3 verse 26 says, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Philippians 4 also has that promise of the richness of His blessing. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus, His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So it's pointing us to the, to the fact that Jesus is in heaven. He's received the kingdom and all the blessings of salvation at His disposal. He shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And what is it specific? Well, specifically what it is, is that in the heart of this promise, the Lord promises to give to His people all that He promises in Christ, the best of mercies. If we just think of the bread, which the Lord Jesus picks up as a symbol later in John 6, and he says here, just as he has reminded them, I gave you bread in the wilderness. You ate manna, and I'm willing to give you food today too. Here you are in a famine. You are in a drought. And he says, I, I'm willing to feed you with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. Well, Jesus presents himself in John 6 as the bread of life. There isn't a finer wheat. There isn't a finer bread than Jesus Himself. And so the the Jews are following Him and He gave gave bread one day. The next day He stopped handing out bread. And they said, well, Moses gave it. He he said, Moses didn't give you that bread. But my Father in heaven, He gave you that bread. And today, Jesus said in John 6, "Uh, the Father is giving you the bread of life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And so in the center of these promises of grace to his covenant people is Jesus Christ, who is offered freely. And in him all the blessings of salvation are contained. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus says, they shall be filled. You need righteousness in order to enter heaven. The unrighteous will not enter heaven. Where do you get it from? The Lord says, I will give it to you in my Son, Jesus. You need forgiveness. He has died for the forgiveness of sins. You need holiness. He imputes not only righteousness, but even a cloak of holiness upon His people so that they have the wedding garment that they can enter the heavenly feast with. He gives to them liberty and joy and peace and love. All the essential blessings of salvation are promised to us in Christ Jesus, in the promises of His covenant, have we embraced these things? Have we gone to Him, to the throne of mercy, to find help in time of need? Do we open our mouth, or do we stubbornly refuse to pray? well, there's an encouragement that's added here as well, isn't there? When he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he says, I am Jehovah. You notice that, the capital letters in the text, L-O-R-D. That means the Lord is saying, I'm Jehovah. And you remember what that means, don't you? Well, the most clear text to explain what Jehovah means is Malachi 3, verse 6, where the Lord says, I am Jehovah, I change not. In other words, I promise and I keep my promises. I don't change my mind about the goodness of my promise and my willingness to bless. I am Jehovah, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob. Why does he call the Israelites that? Well, because they are descendants of Father Jacob. Yes, but there's more to it. He doesn't call them Israel. He calls them sons of Jacob because Jacob means deceiver. And he says, you people, you, you draw near to me with your mouth, and then in your walk of life you go astray. You are by nature deceivers, and my holiness tells me as Jehovah God that I should have nothing to do with these people, that I should set them aside. But I am Jehovah, and that's why you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. You're still my people, my covenant people. I'm still going to you. I'm holding out my arms. All day long, I hold out my arms to a hard-hearted and gainsaying people. That's what Jehovah means. The God of the covenant is so patient. Oh, my people. Another encouragement, not only the encouragement in his name and who he is, but secondly, that he says, I am the Lord your God. I've committed myself in a relationship of covenant to you, to be your God. You like it when your, your wife says, this is my husband. That's personal ownership, right? Uh, that's owning up the relationship between yourself and your husband or wife. Well, the Lord says, You're mine, and I'm yours. I'm in this covenant relationship with you. I am the Lord, your God. Surely, you wouldn't want to go to another. Like when when your wife says, this is my husband, you are reminded implicitly, she's your only one. And the Lord says that to his covenant people. Why are you going after idols? I am your God. And he in faithfulness still says that. Have we said amen to his yes? Or are we saying no to him? By keeping our mouth closed. Well, God's people surely are thankful that the Lord has made them willing by His grace, by His power. He has melted their heart. He has taken away the hard-hearted shell, and He has enabled them to come in repentance and call upon Him and repent of their sin and, and trust in the Lord Jesus. I mean, they are able to say with the Heidelberg Catechism, what is my only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong to Him, my faithful Savior, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and He has made me sincerely ready and willing henceforth to live unto Him. That is the embracing of the covenant relationship with this God. How? Through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant. In our relationship with Him, we have a saving relationship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a blessed thing the Lord is offering us in this covenant context. And he's proven that we ought to go back to him over and over because he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Didn't I prove that I was true to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I did that? Well, then he's reminding his people who are in in this relationship with him, I will do it again. Maybe they're in Babylon, or maybe they're inundated by the pagans in their land, But whatever it is. He says in verse 7, You called in trouble, and I answered you then. I can do it again. Oh, how sad it would be, congregation, if, if we would not respond with willingness to this. Oh, then let us not hesitate every time we have a need to go to Him. Let us ask for big things, you say well well i'm saved thanks be to god but i have children who have gone astray that's a big thing but the promise of the covenant is to you and to your children so go to them with this promise and say god is willing to have mercy he's willing to do great things you think well, maybe as a parent, well, if only one of them could be saved, I don't dare to expect or ask that all of them No, come with great petitions. You're coming to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the heart of kings are in His hand. He can turn them wherever He will. He can surely save even all of your children. Pray for that. We need revival in Canada. That's a big thing. Let's ask God for that, for revival in our time. Just let me end with with this one statement. I have to because the context tells me it's possible that in a covenant congregation, there may be those who say no to God's covenant. It's possible because the psalm tells us, verse 11, but my people would not heed my voice. My covenant people, they said no to me. When did that happen? On Mount Sinai. He announced, I'm your God. Moses went up into the cloud. They didn't see him for some 40 days. What happened? They made a golden calf. They danced around a golden calf in some lewd way, in a way that just showed they ignored God. They disowned the Lord Jehovah as their God. You say, well, that's horrible indeed. But that is happening today too in Christian churches, where the Lord has held out his arms to stubborn sinners, and he has been patient and merciful. And yet they walk out of church and they they go into the world. They, like prodigal sons, want nothing to do with him. And how it grieves the Lord. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, verse 13. And that they would walk in my ways. Congregation, let us not grieve the Lord, the God of the covenant, but rather... Let us open our mouths, ask, humble ourselves, repent, and receive from him. He says yes to us. Let us respond with the amen of our heart. Yes, Lord, be my God, my Savior, and the answer to all my needs for Jesus' sake.